This is our fourth or my fourth visit to the Philippines four years ago. Had the great privilege of meeting Giselle or Pastor Giselle and Mylene for the very first time and being with a, a church uh, over across the road in Market Market. Had an awesome morning and have been coming back uh, for the last three. This is our fourth year. Uh, my wife Jay was with me last year and uh, the year before Jesse. Jay unfortunately couldn't be here this year, but I did the next best thing since you love photos. I brought a photograph of my, me and my wife. So there's Jay saying hello. Where is she? Oh, there she is. Hello, Jay. So uh, Jay sends a love. The, one of the reasons she wasn't able to come or decided not to come is because back in October, she gave birth to our fourth child. And uh, this, is, this is our kids here. One, two, three, four. And um, so that's... Uh, Jesse, Ebony, Charlie, and little Zoe. Zoe Joy. You don't have to know too much Greek to know what that means, eh? Zoe Joy. And so she, uh, she was born in October, and uh, she really is a joy, and hoping that she'll be able to come over next year because, you know, when they're under two, they travel for free, and we want to take advantage of that. So, <laughs> so next, next year, we have to come back within a year. As uh, Rob said this morning, uh, we've known one another, Rob and Glenda, uh, for many years. Rob was actually my pastor when I was a young adult, um, from the age of maybe 19 through to 23. When we were 23, we planted um, a church in my hometown, uh, 23 years of age. And so those formative years in my young adult years were spent uh, with Rob and Glenda as our pastors. I've actually brought a photo of me on my wedding day to see what I looked like when I was 21. And uh, this is, this, which one am I? Oh, come on. Not the second from the right. I mean, I'll narrow it down a little. This is, uh, I'm the eldest of four children and uh, myself, my two brothers, and my sister, and there's another reason I've shown that photo, which I'll reference later on. But uh, praise God for family. And God puts the lonely into families. Isn't that good news? The um, purpose of Jesus Festival, and I was meant to grab a brochure when I came up here, but one of the main purposes of Jesus Festival, I think the last thing on the vision statement for this event is that we would know who we are in him. That we would know Christ. And second to that, that we would know who we are in him. It's a very powerful, powerful thing. This conference this year is called The Real Jesus. And what I want to do is I want to entitle my message this, this afternoon, The Real You. I want to talk about The Real You. Already it's been referenced, but in John 17, Jesus prays what effectively is the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> it's the prayer the Lord prayed in John 17. And he says this, he said, Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, that they may know you. Ultimately, your great purpose in life is to know him, to know the real, Amen. true God, to know him. Some might say, well, Chad, I thought our purpose in life was to love him. Well, listen, love is only a response to knowing him as your lover. Well, Chad, I thought our purpose in life was to serve him. Well, hang on. We only serve God because we know him as our king. Our purpose in life, ultimately, and the key to eternal life, is that we would know Him. And know Him in intimate, unhindered authenticity. To know Him is your great and highest eternal calling, and this is eternal life, that you would know Him. And as Jesus goes on to pray, He says another profound thing in the next verse. He says, Father, I have brought you glory on the earth... Verse 4 says, I have brought you glory on the earth by completing the task that you have given me. Now, that's really interesting to me that Jesus would say, I've completed the task you've given me because here in John 17, he hasn't even gone to the cross yet. He hasn't died. 
He hasn't raised from the dead. He hadn't sprinkled the heavenly utensils, preached to the spirits in dungeons. He hadn't appeared to Peter. He hadn't ascended, given the great commission. He hadn't given gifts to the church, led captives in his train and returned again for his bride. Jesus had a lot more to do. So what did he mean when he said, I have already completed the task you've given me? What task was that, Jesus? Well, fortunately, he tells us in the next verse, in verse 6, he says this, For I have revealed you to those you've given me. The task that Jesus had completed in his three years of public ministry was revealing the Father before he went to the cross. Everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus said was to bring to us a revelation of who God really is. So Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus' ministry primarily was twofold. It was a ministry of revelation and then a ministry of reconciliation. Jesus came to reconcile us to the Father, which he did ultimately, of course, by his work at the cross. But before he did that, he wanted the world to know that this God is a God who is worth being reconciled to. And so every act Jesus performed from his first miracle, when he turned 600 litres of water into top quality South Australian wine, a miracle of extravagance. And it says there in John, he thus revealed his glory. He revealed something of what the nature of God is really like. That God is a God of extravagance. God is a God of exuberance. God is a God who is over the top and generous and generous. To the very last miracle he performed before he died, where he was in a garden surrounded by people who hated him, who had clubs and swords in their hands, who misunderstood him and came to arrest him. And Peter, one of his friends, thought he was doing the right thing when he cut off the ear of a servant. And Jesus revealed what God is like. When he stooped down in the dirt, he picked up that piece of ear and he healed a man who hated him. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. For Jesus came that we would know him. He had a ministry of revelation and he had a ministry of reconciliation. And it is in this prayer of Jesus in John 17 that Jesus said, just as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. Just as the Father has apostled me, sent me, commissioned me with a ministry of revelation and a ministry of reconciliation, so also I send my people. My friends, you have a ministry to reveal the name and nature of God to a world that he already loves. For that was the role of the royal priest Melchizedek. When Abram was hearing the voice of God in chapter 12, 13 and 14 of Genesis, Abram followed a voice. He was being blessed by God and he was following God. He heard the voice of God and he was being blessed by God, but he didn't know who God was until Melchizedek revealed it to him. Which is why it's not until the chapter 15 of Genesis that it says Abram believed God and he became righteous. You see, Abram had a relationship with God for three chapters. God was talking to him, God was speaking to him, God was leading him and God was blessing him, but Abram did not enter into a right relationship with God until Melchizedek came to him with bread and wine, a picture of the new covenant, and said, Abram, the God that is blessing you, his name is El Elyon, God most high, the one who possesses the heavens and the earth and has given your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek comes and for the first time, Abram hears the name of the God that is leading him. Melchizedek comes and reveals the name and nature of God. And then it says, Abram believed God and he became righteous. Friends, our priestly ministry, like Melchizedek, is to reveal the name and nature of God to people that God already loves and is already blessing and is already leading. They just don't know it yet. How many of you, when you came to Jesus, looked back over your life and said, Wow, Jesus has been tracking me all these years. I just didn't know it was him. Until someone came to me and revealed his name and nature to me. My friends, you have a ministry to reveal the name and nature of God. And you do that by being the real you. We reveal the real Jesus when we live as we truly are. When we reveal the real us. And knowing who you are is absolutely vital to that. 
being rooted and grounded in your identity in Christ is so important. And so Jesus combines these two things, a revelation of who he is and a revelation of who we are. When Peter comes to him one day and Jesus says, listen, guys, who do people say that I am? And they say, look, all different people are saying all different things. And he says, well, that doesn't really matter. Who do you say I am? And Peter says, I know who you are. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon, because this revelation has not come to you by man, but this has been revealed to you by my father in heaven. And he said, now that you know who I am, I want to tell you who you are. Now that you have a heavenly revelation of who I am, I want you to know who you are. You are Peter. And it is on this rock that I will build my church. The rock revelation. Could it be that the revelation of heaven of who Jesus is and combined with that, the revelation of who we are because of him. One of the turning points in Israel's history, one of the major turning points is in Numbers 12, 13 and 14, where Moses sends 12 spies into Canaan. You know the story. 12 of them come back. They come back, 10 of them with a bad report and two of them with a good report. Their names are Joshua and Caleb. They were of a different spirit. And the thing that made them different was this. The 10 spies came back and they said, listen, the land is good, but we can't possibly do it. Caleb came back and he said, no, 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 the land is good and there are obstacles there, but we should go and we can go. The debate in that story is not whether or not God was big enough to overcome the giants. The debate was, are we big enough? Because the 10 spies said, no, 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 we're just grasshoppers, mate. It's in the Hebrew, mate. We're just grasshoppers. We are so small. We are so insignificant. And Caleb said, no, 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 no. We should go and we can. A man of faith, a man with a different spirit. I tell you what, there are plenty of us who know what we should do. But faith is saying we should and we can. We should and we can. And so when Paul says to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and he says, fight the good fight of faith. He said, one of the ways you fight the good fight of faith is by making the good confession. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The good confession, the word there in the Greek is homos logos. It means the same word. To confess means the same word. And he gives us a clue as to what that means. When in the next verse he says, even Jesus made the good confession in front of Pontius Pilate. See, some of us, when we think confession, we think of a little black box and talking about how rotten and stinky we are. But no, no, no. Jesus made the good confession. I want to tell you right now, Jesus didn't confess his sin. What did Jesus say to Pontius Pilate? Because before Pontius Pilate, he made the good confession. What did he say to Pontius Pilate? He said, I am king. He confessed his identity when it didn't look like he was king. When the circumstances and situation didn't look like he was king, he said the same word that God said over him. My friends, when you make the good confession, you confess the identity of Christ. This is who Christ is. And when you make the good confession, you confess your identity, who you are because of him. And that is how we fight the good fight of faith. So today, I want to talk about the real you. Are you with me? There are multiple identities that we have, just in the natural and in the spiritual. We have multiple identities. I am a father. I am a son. I am an uncle. I am a nephew. I am an employer. I am an employee. I am a pastor. And I am a president of my children's basketball club. I am many things. And I do not have a multiple identity disorder. I am not 2% father, 2% son, 2% brother, 2% uncle, 2% nephew, 2% grandson. And if you add them all up, it becomes the real me. No, no, no. I am 100% a husband. I am 100% a son. I am 100% a pastor. And I am 100% a president of the Wildcat Celtics Basketball Club. And even though you may never know me as that, that is what I am. 
And in the same way, God, Jesus, has many different identities that he reveals himself as. And we can't dismiss one because we think it contradicts the other. No, Jesus exists in perfect harmony. Hey, there's a difference between something being complicated and something being complex. Lawrence was saying that Pastor Paul Chase loves to scuba dive. When you, if you look at an ecosystem like a coral reef, I tell you, it's complex. There's a lot of complexity. But the difference between something being complicated and something being complex is when something is complex, everything works in beautiful harmony with one another. And so the same with us, the church. Our role is to reveal, Ephesians says, the multifaceted nature of God. Not just a one-dimensional God, but to reveal His multifaceted nature. To do that, we embrace the multifaceted nature of who He is. And to do that, we embrace the multifaceted nature of who we are. And so we may have many identities, but they do not contradict one another. They complement one another, and we are to embrace them all. I do not have time today to go through all the identities that you have as a new covenant believer in Christ, but I do want to focus on three because that's how I roll. I'm a three-point preacher, okay? So all the Baptists love me. And these three identities are not the most important ones by any means, but they are the three that we see mentioned time and time again in the introductions to Paul's letters. Today, I want to speak to you about being the fact that we are sons, that we are servants, and that we are saints. Sons, servants, and saints. I'm going to start in Romans chapter 1. If you have a Bible, flick through. We're going to be quick, so you may need to keep up with me, but I want to read some introductions to Paul. Are you ready? Do you understand me? Is my accent okay? Romans 1, verse 1. Paul... A servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Everybody say, servant. And who is he writing to? In verse 7, he says, To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Some of you in your Bible, you have a translation where the word to be is in italics. Anyone? Yeah? The reason it's in, in italics is because the words to be are not actually there. It doesn't say who are called to be saints. It says who are called saints. Everybody say saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God is Father, we are sons. Because the Holy Spirit is holy, we are saints, and because Jesus is Lord, we are servants. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the next letter. 1 Corinthians 1 says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, those who are made holy, and called holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God is Father, we are? Because Jesus is Lord, we are servants. And because the Spirit is holy, we too are saints. We are holy. Second letter of Corinthians, the very next one. Very similar. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.1, 1, 1, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all the saints throughout Acacia, grace and peace to you from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God is Father, we are. Because Christ is Lord, we are. And he calls us saints. Skip Galatians, go to Ephesians chapter 1, one of my favorite passages of all time. Starts in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you turn to the book of Philippines, this will be the last one. What? The book of Philippines. I said that right, didn't I? Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus to all the 
saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because God is Father, we are sons. He calls this church a group of saints, and Paul introduces himself and Timothy as servants. And what I want to do today is I want to model my preach around Paul's, many of Paul's letters, where in the introduction to his letters, he affirms his listeners in the fact of their identity, that legally and literally, God has given us a new identity. And then toward the end, he urges them and encourages them and inspires them and and challenges them to live out that identity in a way that represents Jesus well. We are sons. When Zoe was born in October, even before we chose her name, she already had an identity. Even before she was born, And the first identity that a baby is ever given is that that baby, that child, is a son or a daughter of somebody. Even when parents do not yet have a name to give their child when it's born, some people take days or weeks to choose a name, that baby has a surname because that child is instantly a son or a daughter of somebody. Jesus came and he said in his ministry of revelation and reconciliation, he said, I am the way, the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus did not come so that we can get to a place. He didn't say, I am the way, the truth and the life and no one gets to heaven except through me. Now that may be true because heaven is God's home. That's not his emphasis because he didn't come to bring us to a place. He came to reconcile us to a person. I'm the way, the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. And in the gospel, the wonderful news is that our sonship is secure because of the finished work of Christ. And so John in chapter 1 can say, he came to the world that he created and even though they didn't receive him, to those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Children not born of human lineage or a husband's decision, but children who are born of God. Later on in his life, John the Apostle writes, how rich the Father's love that he has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Ephesians 1, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons to the praise of his glorious grace. And he did this by his good pleasure and his will. You are a son legally because of the new covenant. The word covenant and the idea of covenant, it's a legal term. It it describes our legal standing before God. It's a covenant relationship. It's a legal, like a document. Okay, this is our legal standing. In legal language, the new covenant language, we are sons. And Ephesians 1 illustrates that by describing your sonship is the fact that you were adopted into God's family. How many of you remember the photo of my brothers and sister before? How many of you realize that my sister does not look like me and my brothers? And not just because she's female. (laughs) My sister is Asian. My sister is from Korea. She was not born into our family. She was not born biologically into our family. But my parents adopted her. And the moment she was adopted, my parents paid the adoption price. My parents chose her. They selected her. They said, she is the one that we want. They paid the price and they went out of their way to go and get her, to bring her into our family. The moment they did that, her identity, legal identity, changed in an instant. Her surname changed. Any of the debts that she would have acquired from her previous family were cancelled. They're no longer hers because her name's changed. She's now become a Mansbridge and she inherits every blessing that the Mansbridges get. Because she has undergone a legal identity change. And so legally, you are a son or daughter of God. Legally, your name has changed. And there is nothing that can revoke that. God paid the price to have you as his own. And he signed your adoption papers with his own blood. 
that you could belong to him. He chose you. He selected you. And he knew what he was getting. He knew what he was getting and he chose you. That is a powerful revelation. But I tell you what, there's more to it than that. Because there's more to the gospel than just a new covenant. 2 Corinthians says that those who are in Christ, therefore if any man be in Christ, in other words, if any man has received the new covenant, he becomes a new... A new creation is not a legal change. A new creation is a literal change. And so while it's true that legally we have been adopted into God's family, John the Apostle comes along and he says, you know what, there's more than that. You have literally been born from God. Born from above. Your DNA, spiritually speaking, has changed. You have been born of the eternal seed of God. And so not only legally are you God's son, literally, you have the DNA of heaven within you. You are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. In the new covenant, we are adopted. In the new creation, we are born of God. And God gives us not only sonship legally and literally, but he then puts us into a new community where we live out our sonship and God gives us brothers and sisters. J.I. Packer said something along the lines, I don't have the quote on me, but he said, you consider how much someone makes of the wonder of being God's son. And if they make little of that, you can understand that they don't understand the gospel very much at all. Jesus revealed many things about God, but I would suggest that the primary revelation of who God is, is that God is Father. Which is why in the Old Testament, God is referred to as Father only half a dozen times. By the New Testament, over 230 times, God is called Father. When God speaks to Jesus at his baptism, we've mentioned this already today. He says, this is my son whom I love and with him I am well pleased. God accepts Jesus and God affirms Jesus. And he does the same to you. The next time we hear God the Father speak to Jesus in audible voice, he says this, the man of transfiguration. He says, this is my son. Listen to him. Acceptance, affirmation and authority. And the same is true with you. It reminds me of the father and the story of the dancing father. The kissing father. The running father, the hugging father. It's not the story of the prodigal son. The prodigal son's not the focus. The focus is the father. And when the son comes home, the father accepts him. The father affirms him because he celebrates the son. How many of you know the father did not tolerate the son? He celebrated him. How many of you know God does not tolerate you? He celebrates you. The father did not see the son coming and say, oh dear. I guess I better have him back or mother's going to kill me, you know. No, he ran out to the son and he threw a party because he did not just accept him. He affirmed him and he celebrated the son. And in putting sandals on his feet and a robe on his back, he also put a ring on his finger. And that speaks of authority. It's like Joseph, when he was in charge of Egypt, was giving a signet ring, a signature ring. It's like this ring is the signature of my father. And when I speak, it's as if he is speaking. See, the wonder of our adoption, of the fact that we are God's son, is not only that we are God's children, as awesome as that is, but it is that we are fully-fledged adult sons with the ambassadorial authority of our father to extend his family business and bring his kingdom in greater measure to earth. That's Paul's point in Galatians 3 and 4, when he said, listen, under the old covenant, you were like children who had a nanny, a pedagogue to keep you in line and tell you, do this, do this, don't do that, don't do that, do this, do this, don't do that. He said, we were like slaves. We were children, so we were kind of heirs, but we, were, we remained children under the law. But now that Christ has come, you are now sons, no longer children with no authority who one day might inherit the estate. No, no, no. In Christ, you're no longer children. You are sons. 
and as a son. You are an adult who has the full authority of your father, which changes the way sometimes that we pray. See, I've got no problem as a child, if that's my, that's my revelation of God, that I have a daddy who loves me and who meets my needs. I've got no problem when I need a need of going to heaven and asking him for things. There's no problem with that. As my revelation of being a child that my father loves, I can go to my dad's fridge. And I can open it and I can take what I need. But as a revelation that I am an adult son, I understand not only do I have access to heaven, but I become heaven on earth. I become a fridge. I become a dispenser of the glory of God and the goodness of God. I wear my father's signet ring. So when storms come, you can ask your father to deal with it. If you see yourself as a child, or you can stand tall with your chest out as an adult son and talk to the storm. If you're a child, the best thing you can do when you see sickness or disease is to ask your dad to do something about it. And that's, that's valid. But if you see yourself as an adult son, you conduct yourself like your father would. You represent your father on the earth. And you don't talk to your father about the sickness. You talk to the sickness about your father. Because you have his authority, acceptance, affirmation, and authority as God's sons. Because God is Father, we are sons. Come on, give him a hand clap or something. You can do that. <laughs> Secondly, because Jesus is Lord, we are servants. Each of the epistle writers, we've seen Paul do it. James, Jude, John, and Peter do it as well. They all call themselves servants of Christ, which is interesting to me. Because we all know in John 15 that Jesus came to his disciples one day and he said, listen, I no longer call you servants. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. And yet John, who was there that day, writes in his epistles, I am a servant. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. And yet Peter, who was there that day, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 1, says, Peter, a servant. Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. And yet Jude, in his letter, describes himself as a servant. Jesus said, I don't call you servants. And yet James, Jesus' brother, describes himself as a Servant of Christ. Jesus said, I do not call you servants. And yet Paul the Apostle, in most all of his letters, describes himself as a servant and encourages us to have the same mind, the same attitude, and to embrace the same identity. Now, how does that work? Come back next week and Pastor Josel will explain. <laughs> Listen, the word in the Greek for servant is the word doulos. And doulos is a voluntary servant. It's a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 15, where a slave was in subjection to his master. And after a period of time, he was let go. He was set free. And as he would leave his master, woo, a free man, he would remember how good his master was. And he would voluntarily turn around and go back to his master and say, listen, I know you no longer call me servant, but I want to be your servant. <laughs> servant, being a servant is a voluntary choice. That's what a doulos is. It is a bond slave. It is a voluntary act. And so we see here in Philippians, if you just turn the page to chapter 2, Paul says this amazing passage in verse Chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude or your mind should be the same as that of Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature or the appearance of a servant and being found in human likeness. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only son. 
And for the Son so loved the world that he made himself a servant. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And the Son so loved the world that he made himself a servant. Tomorrow we're celebrating Palm Sunday. It's the day where Jesus comes into Jerusalem and they worship him as king. Hosanna to the king. Hosanna to the king. They have this great revelation of him as king. The very next chapter in John, we see Jesus at a dinner. He's having a lamb roast with his friends and he sits down and he takes off his outer garb, his garment. He puts on a thing around his waist. He gets down on the ground and he begins to wash their feet. And Peter, who just saw Jesus as king, said, listen, Jesus, I can't handle this, mate. This is not good. This is not right. You flipped this whole thing. This is wrong. Eh, wrong, Jesus. <laughs> just want to tell you, no offence. Wrong. And Jesus said the most profound thing. He said, listen, if you do not let me serve you, you can have no part in me. Jesus became a servant, the king who became a servant. And Paul encourages his writers to do the same. Let that same attitude be in you. And he says this of himself in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, though I am a free man, that is my identity. That's what God has made me. God has made me free and I am a free man. But though I am a free man, I make myself a servant. Not so I can gain God's approval, because I have that as a son. Not so that I can gain freedom because I have that as a gift. I'm a, I am a free man. He said, I make myself a servant so that I may win others. I make myself a servant for the sake of others that I may reveal the nature of God to them. In our sonship, our eternity is secure. But when we embrace an identity of a servant, we help for the eternity of others to be secure. There are many rewards for service. And I just described an eternal one there. But here's a little reward that you may not have thought of before. Jesus comes to a crowd one day. This has already been quoted here at this event. And he says, listen, if you're tired and weary, he says, I want you to come to me. I want you to learn from me. And I want you to walk with me. And he said, what I want you to do is I want you to take my yoke upon you. Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, I think that's a bit of a strange thing to say. Because if Jesus had said, listen, if you want to find rest for your souls... Come to me and let's lie on the heavenly hammock together. That would make sense to me. I'd say, Amen. If he said, Listen, if you're tired and weary, come to me and find rest to your soul. Come to me and let's lie down in the swimming pool together. I'd say, Amen, Jesus. That makes sense. But do you know what he said? He said, If you want to find rest for your soul, come to me and put my yoke upon you, which is really strange to me because a yoke is a picture of service. But here's the deal. I always used to picture it like this. I used to picture Jesus coming and saying, listen, come to me and I'll give you this yoke. Put this on. But don't worry, it's light and easy. But he didn't say that. See, one thing that a yoke does is it joins two oxen together. So Jesus was saying, listen, come to me. Come to me. Come here. Stand right here. And let's walk together. Let's work together. Let's serve together. And you will find rest for your soul. You see, there is a rest that is promised and there is a rest to be gained. And listen, sometimes you know people who are exhausted all the time. And because they're exhausted... They're exhausting to be around. <laughs> and one of the things that makes them tired, one of the things that makes them tiring, one of the reasons that they have not found rest for their soul is because they're selfish. They're self-absorbed 
They're self-centered and they've made the whole world revolve around them. And Jesus has a cure for that. He said, listen, if you want to find rest for your souls, one of the ways to find rest is to serve with me. Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes off your world. You're not carrying the, the weight of the world on your shoulders. Get your eyes onto other people and live your life for the benefit of others. And one of the awards, one of the rewards for living your life for the benefit of others, walking and working with Jesus. We don't serve Jesus. We serve with Jesus. But in doing that, we find rest for our souls because you were designed to serve him. So I make myself a servant. Because God is Father, we are. Because Christ is Lord, we are servants. And the Holy Spirit, who is holy, has sanctified us and made us saints. Last thing. You are holy. You are a holy one. He has made you holy. And the New Testament describes us many different ways. It calls us a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a holy temple, a holy people, a holy bride. Hebrews calls us our holy brothers. You are holy. And as we know quite well, I think, at a conference like this, we understand that one of the connotations, one of the connotations of being holy has to do in the area of morality. It has something to do with righteousness, purity, blamelessness, the fact that we are justified before a holy God, that we have been made holy in His sight in love. Ephesians 1 verse 5. We are holy in His sight in love. Because of the new covenant, I am legally declared holy. And as a new creation, I have literally been... <laughs> Recreated holy. Huh? See, if we only understand holiness in the context of the new covenant, the fact that we are hidden in Christ, if we only, if our revelation stops there, then we can be duped into believing that I am still a stinking, unhygienic sinner who's just hiding away from God in Jesus. And I'm fooling Jesus. I'm fooling God, who doesn't know I'm still a sinner. I'm just hiding away in Jesus. No, 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 you have not, God is not fooled. God is not fooled. You have literally been recreated as holy. The caterpillar has become a butterfly. You're not just clothed in Jesus, but you're still really a sinner. No, 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 the sinner has become a saint. I am not a sinner who has been saved by grace. I was a sinner. I was saved by grace and I have become a saint. And a sinner, no more am I. That is not my identity. The caterpillar has become a butterfly. It is a new creation. Come on. The butterfly is not just a caterpillar that's been dressed up with wings on, trying to fool everyone. Oh, I'm, still, I'm, still, I'm really a butterfly. I really am. I'm really a butterfly. Oh, no, it's just like a caterpillar in drag. No. We can see you, Adam's apple, mate. We know what you really are, you know. You're not fooling anyone. No, no, no. You're not just legally holy. You have literally become holy, blameless, pure, recreated as holy. And so there are definitely those moral, sinless implications of being holy. But there's actually something more to holiness than that. Because in the Bible, you can have a holy temple. You can have a holy utensil. You can have a holy tithe. You can have a holy mountain. The mountain of transfiguration is called a holy mountain. And how many of you know those things are not moral? Yeah. Right. Wow. You can't have two forks on the table and go, well, that one's moral and that one's not moral. That one's obviously the holy one. No, there's more to being holy than just being declared sinless or moral. To be holy means, first of all, to be special. If something is holy, it is valuable, it is precious, it is priceless, which is why Jesus can say in Matthew 7, listen, don't take holy things and just feed them to dogs. Don't take a precious pearl and just throw it to pigs. Don't treat something that is incredibly valuable and treat it like it's just food scraps. You are holy. Do you know what that means? 
You are precious. You are priceless. You are valuable. You have great worth. In our church at the moment, we're doing a series on the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 13, we see the very first time Paul the Apostle preaches in Pisidian Antioch. And it's the most amazing thing. He preaches his first ever recorded sermon. And there in Pisidian Antioch, a whole group of people reject his message. And he explains it like this. He says, listen, the reason you've rejected my message is because you have not considered yourself worthy of eternal life. This may be too much for one day, but I believe that there is a difference between being undeserving and being unworthy. I'm very happy to say that I, do, I am undeserving of God's love because deserving is about what you do for something. I am undeserving. But Paul said, listen, don't call yourself unworthy. He said, the reason you've rejected the message is because you've considered yourself unworthy of eternal life. Don't do that. You are worthy. God himself has put a value on your head. He says you were worth dying for. He said you are valuable. You are precious. You are priceless. You were worth him giving his son for. Listen, my worth is, my value is not found in how big my church is, on how well I preach, on how many Facebook friends I have, or how many likes I get on my next post. My, I don't care if you don't like me. I don't care if you're not impressed by me. My value does not come from that. My value comes from the fact that God Almighty was willing to give his son to pay the ultimate price, to have me as his own. That's how valuable I am. I am holy, I am special, I am sacred, I am valuable. And so are you. The second meaning of the word holy is to be special, and then it means to be set apart for a special reason. Set apart for a special purpose. And your purpose, as I said right at the beginning, is to know him and to show him. Your role is to know and to show what God is like. Knowing I'm special gives me value. Knowing I, am, I have a special purpose gives me vision. Knowing I am special gives me dignity. Knowing I have a purpose gives me direction. Knowing I'm special gives me, tells me my price. And knowing I'm set apart for a reason gives me my purpose. And our challenge is not just to know that we are legally holy, and not just to know that we are literally holy, but is to live out our holy purpose for the sake of others. And so whoever it is that you believe wrote the book of Hebrews can say this. They can say, listen, make every effort to live at peace with all men and to be holy. Because without holiness... No one will see the Lord. Now listen, I do not make every effort to live holy so that I can see the Lord. That's religion. Jesus is my holiness. Because he is holy, I can see the Lord. Because he has gifted me his righteousness. He has justified me. I will see the Lord one day based on the fact that Christ is my holiness. They say, live at peace among all men and be holy before all men so that without holiness, all men will not see God. I will give myself to a lifestyle of holiness because I want people to see God in me. One of the ways Paul illustrates this, we'll close with this, is in the book of Colossians. Why don't we turn there? Colossians chapter 3. <laughs> Colossians 3. Are you still with me? Verse 12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy, everyone say, holy and dearly loved. How many of you does this apply to? How many of you have been chosen, adopted? You are holy and you are dearly loved. This is for you. Because that is who you are. That is who you are legally and that is who you are literally. Because of this, Clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, with humility, with gentleness, and with patience. Bear with each other, 
Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive just as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You see, our attitudes that we embrace in life, in the way we live out our life, our attitudes, our behaviour, our character, do not determine our identity. Your behaviour does not change your identity. When the son came back to the father smelling of pigs and prostitutes' perfume, he was still a son. His behaviour did not change his identity. Your behaviour does not determine your identity, but our attitudes and our behaviour and conduct are supposed to display our true identity to others. And so Paul describes it in this way. He says, I want you to dress appropriately because of your identity. Wear appropriate clothing so you may display who you truly are before other people. Because if they see the real you, they will see the real Jesus. <laughs> Let me tell you a story. Our clothing is to display who we really are. And there are things that were part of your old life that just don't suit you anymore. Because that's not who you are. You're a son and you're a saint. Pastor Joselle asked us to make sure we use demonstration at this time. So maybe that's what I'll do. Just hang on a sec. My parents still live in the house that I grew up in. And um, I went there some time ago and I was looking for something in my old bedroom. And as I was looking for something, I came across some clothes of mine. Now, when I was a boy, when I was 13, I was at school, I was single, I was not a father, I played tennis, um, and I was also part of the Boy Scouts, which was a boys' group, and uh, I was part of that, I think, from the age of eight or so. And in the Boy Scouts, we had a uniform that we wore, and it was fitting for us because that was my identity. I was a Boy Scout, and so I used to dress appropriately. And I thought to myself, I wonder if my uniform still fits me. The same uniform I had that was appropriate when I was 13. And surprisingly, it, it still fits. <laughs> hey, put those cameras down. My wife, Marlene! Don't you dare put this on Facebook and my wife will kill me. Now listen, when I was 13, I was single, I was a high school student, I was a prepubescent child, and I was a Cub Scout. And it was very appropriate for me to wear this clothing. But in the last 25 years, I've had a radical identity change. I'm no longer a prepubescent 13-year-old. I'm now a grown man. I'm no longer single. I am now a married man with four children. I am no longer a high school student. I'm now a pastor in my community. And if I choose to wear these clothes, it does not change my identity. When I put these on, when I went behind that screen, my identity did not change. I am still a father. I am still a husband. I am still a preacher. I am still a pastor. I am still a grown adult. But how many of you know, this stuff doesn't suit me anymore. If I want to, I can wear it. But it doesn't represent the real me. And the tragedy is that if I wore this clothing every day, my identity would not change. Legally and literally, I would be the same person. But if I chose to wear this clothing every day, God's view of me would not change, but other people's view of me would change. And your opinion, other God's opinion of himself would not change. 
How many of you know God does not look on his children behaving ridiculously and say, oh, gee, am I like that? Sometimes as parents, we do that. We see our kids doing things and we think, oh no, did they get that from me? Am I like that? God doesn't do that. He's secure. He knows who he is. When I behave inappropriately, God's view of me doesn't change and God's view of himself doesn't change. But when I behave outside of my true identity, other people's view of me changes. And tragically, other people's view of the God that I represent changes. We are called to represent God well. And we do that by being the real you, by taking what is yours legally, taking what is yours literally and living it out as a lifestyle. So for goodness sake, be you. Be the real you. Listen, just like these clothes don't suit me anymore. It's all the chocolate we have at Easter. Listen. These clothes don't suit me anymore. Deceit does not suit you anymore. Being stingy does not suit you anymore. It's not who you are. Being insecure, it doesn't suit you anymore. That's not you. Sexual immorality doesn't suit you anymore. It's not you. It's not the clothing that represents who you really are. If you behave that way, your identity won't change. But it's just not you anymore. And so when Paul writes to the Corinthians who are sleeping with temple prostitutes, getting drunk at communion, suing one another, being so immature. He doesn't call them the sinners in Corinth. He still calls them saints. He still calls them chosen. He says, this is who you are. Now, live out of that identity. Be who you really are. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel that you've received. Because it's very uncomfortable. When you are not being true to yourself. We are sons. We are servants. The musicians come and we are saints. Somewhere, one of these identities has really meant something to you today. Son, servant. Saint, why don't you close your eyes, please? Mainly so you don't have to look at me anymore. If that revelation of God as Father and of you as His chosen Son, daughter, accepted, affirmed, and authorized with authority, if that identity of sonship has really spoken to you today. And today you want to make a stand and stand up and say, I am a son of God and I am going to live my life out of that identity as his son. If that has spoken to you today, I want you in faith to stand on the count of three and and, and stand strong and secure as a son today. If that's what spoke to you, three, two, one, stand up, sons of God. If today the picture of servanthood is the thing that really meant something to you, and today you want to say, I make myself a servant. I know I'm a free man, but my master is so good. I choose to lay down my life to serve him. If that is what is spoken to you today, on the count of three, I want you to stand to your feet as a servant of your King Jesus. One, two, three, servants stand. Today, if the picture of sainthood has really spoken to you and you understand that you are holy, literally, legally, and as a lifestyle in demonstrating the nature of God, you want to stand today greater in that sense of identity as a holy one. Then on the count of three, saints wanted to stand to your feet. Three, two, one, saints, stand. Dad, we thank you for being always true to who you are. You are reliable. The God who never changes. The God who is always trustworthy. Jesus, we thank you for truly representing the Father. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for continuing 
that revelation in our life, would you continue to reveal to us the Father, continue to make Him known to us. We submit our hearts to this great privilege in Jesus' mighty name. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you.